How's everybody? Uh, I want to welcome you to Kesed. If this is your first time, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm so excited that you came. Thanks for being a part. I want to welcome everybody who's streaming with us. Uh, also excited that you're here. Uh, we are in a series right now called Where the Girls Are. And uh, we're talking about all the myths and misconceptions we think the Bible teaches us about women. And uh, this is week three. The first two weeks have been really interesting. I've had a lot of um, intense conversations with folks that, that want to know where this series is going and what it's about and, and are uh, just curious about the agenda. And we don't really have one other than like talking about the myths and misconceptions we think the Bible teaches us about women. <laughs> so, so just chill out a little bit for a second. We're talking together as a church about things that, that a lot of us brought into the room that we're going to look at and see if the Bible uh, affirms or if the Bible actually teaches us uh, something different. So I'm so excited that so many people have decided to participate, even though there's a lot of different worldviews in the room right now. And I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. And uh, that's what we're going to do today is just a little more of that. Um, this message that I'm going to give is, uh, is going to feel a little bit one-sided, and that's on purpose, because today I'm going to talk primarily to men. Uh, I'm going to ask you, if you are a man who has been with me for a while, you kind of know every once in a while when these sort of uh, bare-knuckled, no-gloves talks happen. Um, you are pretty good at taking punches if you've been around for a few years. If you're new and you're used to uh, the last few months of kind of just being curious and sort of just kind of sitting in the room and feeling good, this might feel a little different to you. And so I just want to tell you right away, this is not personal. Uh, I'm not trying to come after you. I'm not trying to point you out. I'm just, I'm just going to say a few things and, and sort of put it out there how it is. And then you get to process and do with that whatever you like. For the ladies in the room, and this is the third time I've given it, so I just, this is from experience now I'm asking, third time I've given this talk, I just want to ask for a little bit of kindness. Because what's happened in this, in this particular talk is that a lot of men in the room are like, really? Is that for real? Do you really think that? Or is that really how you see the world? And a lot of women in the room are like, yeah. And it's this really strange space of, of even in my own life, like I've gone to quite a few women in my own life and shared a few things. And the response is, is I'm like surprised. And they're more like, how do you not know this? And so it's been good for me in my life. And I just want to ask the ladies in the room, create a little space after church for your husband to be curious with you, to ask questions uh, and, and be kind and gentle with that response. And also be kind and gentle with me, ladies, because one thing that I have been told so far is, when are you just going to like hold them down and, and, and choke the life out of them? And I'm like, hey, 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 just we got to take it one week at a time. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry if this isn't mean enough, but uh, I, I'm excited about it. And so far, uh, it's driven a lot of people to have a lot of really good conversations. Um, my context today is going to be within the story and the person of David, King David. And this is because I believe David is the man most Christian men want to be like. He is a giant killer. He is somebody who, um, who does big things with his life. And, and specifically, he's a man who story starts off with a whole bunch of really big overcomings. And men love those stories, right? That's 80% of the movies we see are, are 
some, you know, some man, you know, awakening in his, in his middle age to have to pick back up the guns he sat down to go out and do the thing in the town no one else could do but him. And he ends up being the hero. And somewhere along the way, he even picks up a beautiful new girlfriend. It's profound. And we're like, that should be my life. And, and we, this is just, the, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's, it's, we lean into it a lot. And I think, I think we've even leaned into it in the Bible. We've kind of cherry picked certain parts of the Bible and we've highlighted them. And I, I want to talk about that today. David, as I said, is a giant killer, but his story doesn't start off that way. He starts off as an average everyday guy. He's out doing his job and and, uh, you know, this person shows up who has all this power from God. And this person says to him, you're going to be the new king. And David's like, what, me? And then he goes about his life waiting for that thing to happen. I think a lot of guys in the room are still waiting for, like, somebody to call that thing out in their life that, that is great about them. And I know in my own life, I'm always wishing for that. Like, someone just comes and says, Danny, you thought you were this way, but really you're this way. And I'm like, I knew it. <laughs> I got to go pick up my guns, go kill this thing nobody can kill, and get a new, nope, my wife will be with me the whole time. That's the only difference in my story. <laughs> At the beginning, uh, David is described as this kind of powerless servant on a mission to support those stronger than him. His brothers are actually these legit soldiers, and they're away at war, and it's not just any war, it's a war that's about to eliminate the entire culture of Israel, it's against the Philistines. And the Philistines have this huge giant, and we know the story, his name is Goliath. And David is sent basically to bring cheese. He's a cheese boy. He's like, take some lunch to your brothers who are at the front lines doing powerful things. Take a break from the sheep, go bring them these cheese. And so David shows up and he brings cheese. But while he's there, you can tell he's not intimidated by the soldiers or the story or any other part of the narrative. Instead, he feels like he belongs there. And so in this sense, and we as guy love this, this is one of the first overcomings. He overcomes a sense of insignificance. Just remember these. Remember a few of these things because they're really important. He overcomes a sense of insignificance. He's like, I'm not just a cheese boy. I got purpose in my life. I'm going to do something about it. We love this. He ends up hearing this giant come out while he's there talking with his brothers. And the giant does this big, terrible taunt. And the giant says, basically, send out your best soldier. And uh, if he defeats me, then we'll say you won the war. But we all know no one can defeat me. So why don't you guys just give up as it is? And so David challenges this giant. And in this way, the second thing he does is he overcomes the pressure to conform to be respected. He says, even though I'm not a soldier... Even though I'm young, even though I may appear insignificant, I'm going to overcome that. And I am going to walk into this place and I am going to be aware of my surroundings. And so he overcomes the pressure to conform, to be respected. He says, I'm going to do what I need to do. Eventually, this kid calling out this giant gets all the way to the king. He gets to Saul, and so Saul calls him in. And for some reason, Saul hears his story, looks at him, and he sees more than just a cheese boy. He sees more than somebody who's uh, conforming to be respected. He sees more than somebody who uh, feels insignificant. And he goes, you know what? I believe in you. It's amazing. All men, by the way, it's a big thing of mine to find mentors and to be a mentor. Men, as much as as much as you may say that you don't want that, I think deep down inside, all men want a man who's done it well to come alongside us and speak into our lives and call out the hero in us. And Saul does that for David. And he also offers him this very cultural thing. He says, put on my armor. And David puts on the armor. 
And immediately he does this really powerful thing. He overcomes the cliche definition of what's needed to be powerful. He looks at the world around him. He looks at how the world's trying to outfit him. And he goes, no, this isn't for me. He decides to be his own person. He says, I can't wear this. I'm just going to be who I am. We love this. Yet there's nothing better than a story of guy, a guy who does all these amazing things just as he's built to be. Then after this, he walks out, sees the giant, and he throws a stone and slaps him right in the forehead. It's amazing. Most of us just finished the story right there, and we don't realize that David actually didn't kill the giant with the stone. David, who was young, David, who was basically barely a teenager, walks up and picks up the giant's sword, which I've always found interesting because David's young and small and the giant is huge. I mean, they give all the weights and measurements of all of his gear. Have you ever thought how he was able to pick up that sword? I personally think there might have been some sign going on. Never thought about that, did you? <laughs> Saul's just like, kill me now. David's like, I'm trying, bro. I'm trying. But he does it, and he kills him. And therefore, he overcomes his own inadequacies to face an ever-present danger to those he loves. And it's all these qualities that lead David to be the king that he was. The end. Incredible story. Be like David. Life is awesome. God is good. Oh, I love church. It's a powerful story. It's just an incomplete story. We love heroes in modern days. We love to lift people up that are good representations of who we want to be. But sometimes, and especially when it comes to church, we sort of pick and choose what it is we want and we leave out the rest. Now, you might ask, um, what in the world does this message have to do with where the girls are? As a matter of fact, where even are the girls in this passage? And I think that's a great question. Let's dive in and find them. 1 Samuel 17, 24 through 27 is the first mention of a woman in this passage. And it's when David shows up and his brothers are talking about the giant. This is what he says. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel and the Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, listen closely, and will give him his daughter. There she is. And he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So you get a daughter, you get a woman, and no taxes. Amazing. And David, who was standing by, heard this, this particular offer, and said, what shall be done for this man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. David, did you not hear? If you kill the giant, you get a woman. And you don't have to pay taxes. Interesting, isn't it? This is the first mention of the woman, a woman in the story. The only mention in this celebrated story is the one woman who is to be given as a trophy to the winner. So let's just church this one up because this is what we've done for years and just say women are to be prized. <laughs> it's, what we, it's what they're doing. It's what we see and there's no one speaking against it. But let's see if that actually arcs out in the rest of the story. Let's see if we can find some more women right after that. David kills Goliath, and they're on their way back through a parade, country tour of, of, of the, the cities that they saved on their way back to the, to the main city. As they were coming home, verse 6 of chapter 18, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women, there they are, 
came out to all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. This is what they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very, very angry at the lyrics to this song. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So here... The women and their praises are mentioned as something that is to be fiercely coveted as prestige bringing. Something that was so intense and of such great importance to Saul that not getting this literally breaks his relationship with David never to be recovered from. So let's church this one up and say the attention of women brings power. That's what it does, according to this passage. Hold on, I think there's another woman in the story. 1 Samuel chapter 18, then Saul said to David, this is just a, probably a few months later, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So Saul basically says, I can't kill him. He's too, too loved. So what I'll do is I'll bribe him with my daughter to go back into war, probably against crazy odds, and he'll die that way. But David, not wanting to be a part of the broken system, says to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, he was, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalothite, for a wife. So David wouldn't go to war and play the game, so Saul decided to give his daughter to someone else. And in this way, here we see a woman being used as a tool to manipulate and then punish so we should church this one on up and say, women are incredibly useful. <laughs> I mean, that's clear in the Bible, right? So helpful. It's important to notice that up to this point, David is still doing his very best not to play along and so denies the offer. But this is all about to change. Because, of course, there is yet one last mention of a woman in this story. 1 Samuel 18, verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all the servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David says, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? This is an interesting thing, because in this passage, it's very clear that Michael loves David, but it's also fairly clear that David doesn't love Michael. It says nothing in the passage about his heart for her. It simply says... David doesn't have enough resources to take care of a princess. And Saul's like, hmm. So the servants told him, told David this, and said, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul thought about it. And then he said, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Which, kids, if you want to know what that is, make sure and ask your parents on the way home. 
which were to be given a full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter to Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw, oh, I skipped, hold on. King's enemies, uh, that he might be avenged the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Verse 26, listen. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. This is where David begins to lean into his culture. See, Saul offered just a regular woman, but a princess. David goes, nah, I don't know if I can do that. I feel a little inadequate. And then he goes, okay, how about the woman who loves you? And David's like, ah, that's better, but I don't have the resources. And then he spoke right to his culture, his culture of violence, his culture of warfare, the thing that made David, David. And he goes, here's the deal. I don't want any bride price. All I need you to do is go kill a hundred of God's enemies and bring back their foreskins. And David's like, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Doesn't say anything about her heart or the person she is. It just says that David shifted to think differently about this. Not because of love, maybe a little bit because of spite, because he saw what Saul was doing. But either way, he said, all right, I'll buy your daughter in that way. Verse 26, same chapter, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200, not 100, 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, there's her love again, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Here we see finally David lean into the broken system of his culture where he came to the realization or the acceptance, we'll church it up, that a woman's love should be earned. And everybody knows there's nothing better than the cherished love of a 200 foreskin woman. <laughs> That's a woman who knows her values, guys. That's what I'm saying. And what kind of origin story is that? Like, mom, how'd you and dad meet? She's like, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> Your dad is so good with a sword. <laughs> so, <laughs> have you ever thought about that story? Like, like, like my, my wife and I met in college group. Like, like David's story is way more epic. But from here on out, here's the thing that's the most important though. From here on out in David's life, you're about to see the damage this part of David's story brings both to him and the people he loves. And it's a big part of the story we never talk about because we never tie it to these other things David didn't overcome. We only tie it to the things he, he overcame earlier in his story, but we never stop. And, and when we read this story, pause on these different cultural elements and call them out as wrong. I've never been in a sermon where someone was talking about David and Goliath and all of a sudden we talk about how Saul offered his daughter and the person presenting stops and says, hey, real quick, I just want you to know that's wrong. And David being willing to accept it is wrong. It's broken. And I'm going to show you biblically how it's clearly evident that this story within a story within a story, which is how scripture is, it's all layered. You don't just take it this way. You've got to flip it over, turn it upside down, spread it. You've got to open it. You've got to close it. You've got to, you've got to press it down. You've got to do all these things inside the story in order to see all the angles of this living book. And this is one we never, ever look at. We're going to talk about why? But first, I'm going to show you how damaging this was to David. First off, as he becomes king, he will start out by winning battle after battle after battle the way God asked him to. Anointed, full of his presence, and accomplishing great things. These are the things we in the room, mostly the guys probably, love about David. He doesn't 
lose any of that part of him until eventually he begins to quietly compromise. Eventually, he begins to lean in over and over towards his culture's broken system, deciding to take the easier route of just marrying his way into peaceful relations with the neighboring kingdoms around him. He starts to think, you know, dads seem to love their daughters, and there's a lot of neighboring kingdoms with a lot of neighboring princesses, and I wonder if instead of fighting these people, I could just take their daughters. And so in this way, the women in David's life would become living contracts. And he would sign one after the other, after the other, after the other, to avoid the difficulties of expanding how God wanted him to, and to do it in a way that brought pleasure and peace to him. He thought he was being clever because he was losing less soldiers that way. Therefore, the army of God was getting bigger. So he had outthought how God uh, said he should do it because he found a better system which really was very, very broken. Now you may say at this point in the story, and you may have already been saying it, so you're like, kind of like, eh, this is fun and interesting, but you realize, Danny, this was their culture. And I would just say that in a world right now that we live in, I deal with all kinds of Christian perspective. The strongest, most uh, continuous Christian perspective that I sit with right now are people who say this phrase, culture doesn't dictate truth. In our day right now, this is our culture. And a Christian will say, whoa, whoa, culture doesn't dictate truth, God does. And isn't it interesting that I've never yet sat with a Christian around some of the things broken inside the cultures of the Bible who says, wait a second, that's wrong even for David, God's anointed, because culture doesn't dictate truth. Why would David be able to get away with this? And why is it okay for us to excuse his behavior when we don't excuse that behavior in current day? And the answer is it's not. It's just never talked about. It's never spoken about. And I think a lot of times it's never spoken about because 99% of the people sharing the passage look and sound like me. Why would I want to talk about this really ugly side of my hero? Why would I want to maximize this thing that's very shadow about his story? My guess is because I don't want to maximize this thing that's really shadowed about my own. This benefits David's kingdom. And the way the world's set up right now benefits mine. And so David lives in this world the same that you and I live in this world, gentlemen. Eventually, David finds himself at the height of his power and prestige. His plan has worked. He's done it. He has a huge army. He has an amazing kingdom. He has these houses really close to his palace, and these houses were given to his most trusted leaders. They were his 300 mighty men. They were the men in the cave back before, back before. In our church world, they'd be the guys from Set Up and Tear Down. <laughs> like those are the boys that pushed the trailers and did the hard stuff, and so they live closest to the king's palace. It says that one day, David is standing on his rooftop, and he sees a woman bathing upon her own. Some of the houses around him, that would be culturally correct, and it would have been someone close to his life. Because of the choices David made earlier in his story, because of the culture that said it was okay to see women as prizes to be awarded to warriors and objects to be used, because women's voices brought power and their love was something you could just purchase, David didn't see a person bathing before him. He saw an object, and he wanted it. And so he took it. 
Eventually, this fair affair uh, gets this woman pregnant. Now, I want to say something real quick about this small exchange because I've heard this sermon preached um, actually in a 180 degree uh, point of view. So I'm just going to speak against that because it's just how I'm built. Um, you are not going to hear me talk about the culture of rooftop bathing and the responsibility women should have to protect the integrity of all the surrounding kings leering at them from atop their padded balconies. You're not gonna hear me blame the story on Bathsheba. And I've heard many sermons where it's like, ladies, better watch where you be bathing. What are you after? I heard a whole story about bathing for the crown one time. Like, ladies, who's bathing for that crown? Who's bathing for that crown? And I'm like, I think this lady just was dirty and just wanted a bath. I think she bathed in the most private place she could and the only house that could see her is the one that was highest and that was the one that was lived in by God's anointed. Next thing you know, she gets called to the palace with a man who is literally almost God on earth culturally and he says, I want you. And she's like, ah, I'm property. And David knows it and she knows it. And just in case you wonder, well, are you sure she's not more involved? Eventually, when that woman becomes pregnant and tells David, David calls back his friend, Uriah, the one that was part of the setup teardown of his kingdom back in the cave. He puts him in the house with her, hoping that they'll sleep together. That's how, that's how much he was trying to hide the power that he had taken. He puts her in the house, but Uriah has too much honor. He's like, nah, the soldiers are out on the front lines. I'm gonna sleep in the palace courtyard. David does this multiple times until he knows he has no choice in his limited mind to protect what's his, which is this man's wife. And so he does to Uriah what Saul did to David. And he puts the man on the front line in a really difficult position and he dies. David just kills him. And he takes Bathsheba as his wife and goes on with life like everything is fine. Eventually God shows up and he corrects David harshly and David repents, but the marks of the sin have been left upon David's heart. And so he will struggle with this issue, the disrespecting and devaluing of women for the rest of his life. Eventually his own son, Absalom, will turn against him when his sister Tamar, David's daughter, is raped by their brother, another son of David. The Bible says that although David was angry, he did nothing about one of his sons raping his daughter. And so Absalom's heart grows cold and dark against his father because Absalom realized the same thing hopefully you're starting to see, that the reason David did nothing about this rape is because his, even his own daughter is property. And what David doesn't want to do is mess up anything in the future prince's life. This is how he sees the world. And this is how he lives his life. Here's perhaps the biggest consequence. There's a statement within therapeutic circles that dysfunction is systemic, that it is passed down from culture to culture and generation to generation. And by the way, even church to church. And you can't see that played out more clearly than through the life of David, for David eventually has another son really special son, another anointed person like him. This man's name is Solomon. Scripture teaches us that Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. 
He had divine wisdom from the Lord poured into his person. And yet Solomon also had the culture of his time and the dysfunctions of his father poured into his life. And so those two things are woven together. This is a really important thing to realize what I'm going to share with you next because this is a really important part of of where you take this information in your own story. I think sometimes when we talk about the difficulties women face in our world and the role men play in that, we as men think that, it, that because we're part of that, that oppression, because we are part of that system, even if we're blinded by it, that it somehow minimizes all the heroic things about us. It somehow minimizes the, the wisdom or the, the love. Or, or you're like, but my wife doesn't feel that way. And my daughters are, are wonderfully confident women. Or the people I work with don't think that of me. And so I'm not part of this problem. And yet the Bible teaches over and over that you can be both all those things, all those heroic things, and you can have woven into your story blindly a whole bunch of horrific things. And that part of the tension between spirit and flesh is owning that truth and not somehow feeling like you arrived. Because I just want you to read the next verse about Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived. And this is what it says. Look how it ties so closely to his father's story and the culture they live in. First Kings 11, starting in verse one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Listen to the definition. He had 700 wives. These are living contracts. These are women that expanded and kept peace in the kingdom. And then these were princesses. He had 300 concubines were just women that he wanted to have sex with. And his wives over the years turned his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This is another passage I've heard preached multiple times all about being careful gentlemen who you marry. Not about be careful gentlemen that you don't collect women like horses in a stable. This is, it's profound to me. We're, we, I've heard it many times. We read the passage and we're like, that's what I'm talking about. Women will turn a man's heart. And I'm like, he collected them like baseball cards. He would go through town for sure and was like, that barista's really pretty. Concubine, can you imagine? Like I, you would have to build a palace for just the women you wanted to sleep with. It's amazing. Then you've got 700 wives, all princesses. I mean, you have got yourself into a system that is incredibly broken, and then you want to claim these slaves, these, these, uh, these products, the, you want to claim these objects that they're not loving David towards his God? What? Like, I'm part of a stable, and now I'm supposed to be like, integris, give good advice. I don't, I don't think that makes any sense. I think the issue might lie with Solomon. And I think the issue with Solomon might lie with David. And I think the issue with David might lie with culture and how we treat and have seen women for thousands and thousands of years. And then all of a sudden we get this beautiful book and 99% of the time we read it and don't even address that issue. We just talk about all the overcomings of David. And I love David. But I also want to learn from David 
That's why these mentions are in here. Isn't it profound that even the wisest man to ever live could not break from the system the systemic dysfunction taught to him by his culture and father. This is probably the most profound statement in the entire sermon, and this is the only big question I have for you guys. If the man anointed by God, with counsel built around him, if the man literally called to lead and govern the people, called out as the wisest man to ever live, couldn't see the oppression of God's creation, of, God's, of those he loved, why do you keep thinking you can Like, why are you so profound in your insight and your stances that you're like, listen, Solomon didn't have the internet. He couldn't look up stuff like I can. I understand the oppression of women. Solomon just, he was just of a different culture. Trust me, we have the same broken system, if not more, in many ways in our world right now. We live in this place still. And we're going to speak more and more about this in the coming weeks. But it all starts with you and I deciding not to church up this subject. To let David be a hero and to let these horrific things about his story stand. To say that scripture mentions them for a reason. So you should probably look at them. And you should look at them in your own story. The stuff that you do heroically and the stuff that you do horrifically. That you should see that you can't see. My daughter works at a coffee shop here in town, my oldest middle daughter. And this series has sparked a conversation inside their coffee shop to the point I ended up having a conversation with one of the other girls who doesn't go to church, but that, that feels free to talk to me about this subject, where the girls are and what we're doing with it and all these things. And she goes, yeah. She goes, this is a really interesting thing. It'd be interesting to see if men can see how we see them. And I said, well, tell me more. She goes, well, as a barista, if I'm just being honest, um, of the guys that come through here and order coffee order it from my chest. That they never look at my eyes ever. They give money to my chest, they order their coffee from my chest, and they make no apologies about it. And it's clear that I'm just an object to them to enjoy while I make their coffee. My guess is a lot of us are those guys. And what we'll say is, Boys will be boys. It's just our culture. And we teach it to our boys. We teach it to our girls. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves right back where David was, glorifying God, raising our hands in worship, and then going, having a hot drink while we look at something we'd like to own. Yeah. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? What it takes is a whole bunch of overcomings. Remember the ones at the beginning? The first thing I think a lot of guys need to do is start overcoming our own sense of insignificance. The whole story of creation is not about you. And I'm a cheese boy and you're a cheese boy. And maybe we just need to show up and do our job and let God do what he wants to do with us. And that's probably play a bigger role than we ever thought we would in this issue. The next one is overcoming the pressure to conform to be respected. I hear guys say like, ah, what am I gonna do? I'm with a bunch of other guys. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do in this situation? You conform to what the world wants you to do or you conform to what God has called you to be. Maybe you overcome the cliche definition of what's needed to be powerful. Maybe you appear weak for a minute 
so that you can come alongside others that need it. And lastly, you overcome your own inadequacies so that you too can help face an ever-present danger to those you love. Because then maybe in this way, you can finally help in overcoming the roaring giant the women in the room have already been killing on their own for years. Because here's the thing, and this is maybe the most shocking thing I've learned in this series, and this is hands down. Uh, women are not looking for you gentlemen to rescue them. They're killing giants every day, every day, every day. What they're looking for you to do, you can applaud, that's fine, <laughs> like 12 of you, but that's fine, I'll take all 12. What they're looking for you to do is pick up a sword and be part of the battle, to be part of the story. They're looking for you to, to honor the bodies you see before you. That's why the Bible's so full of brother-sister language. It's telling you story within story within story how to treat these people around you. It's looking for you to question the areas in your life you think are wise or the things you learned from your father or the things you learned from your church. It's looking for you to be okay to, to say that's not okay. It's looking for you to question what it is you consume that makes it hard for you not to see women as objects. It's looking for you to sit in a place of curiosity and really ask what role do you play and how can you be a part of changing it? I believe our church can do that. I believe that, that we can be that kind of space. And I, I joke a lot about our parking spots and the fact that if God hasn't called you here, I don't have enough parking spots for everybody anyways. And I'll be honest, I feel so strongly about this and so passionately that at the end of the series, even if it's just me and 800 women, I'm fine with that. Because <laughs> we'll get some stuff done, ladies, right? I mean, we will get some stuff done. <laughs> A lot of ladies are like, get them out. Let's do it. Get them out. But that's not, that's not what we want. We want partnership and community. But it, my, our, my point is, we don't need it. We want it because the Bible is teaching these things. And I think this is how it should be led. This is how it should be taught. This is why you see women teaching up here because there is perspective and truth and all kinds of insight that they have that I don't and that you don't. And I'm so excited to be a part of a church that's willing to investigate that and look at it. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're gonna close this week in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know we stirred up a lot today. We, we tilted some things. We, we opened some things that are gonna be hard to close. I pray, God, that there would just be a Holy Spirit presence on each home, each person, each heart in the room. That the men in the room would just feel a strong conviction from you to be a part of the solution, to, to be a part of changing uh, their own behavior and their own perspective, that we would see within David's ark some of our own lives. Some of the stuff culture has taught us and legacy has taught us and, and maybe even the church has taught us, but that God, we would be willing to set that down so that we can have new eyes to see as scripture says. And Lord, for the women in the room who live under this daily pressure, I pray you would just let them know that you see them, that they are strong, that they, they are overcomers, that they are also heroes, that they are also a story within a story within a story of your redeeming love. And so may you continue to encourage them, lift them, give them strength to lead, to make the differences they're making. 
and to sit in these spaces with love for those who are awakening to, uh, to just a world many of us never saw before. We're so thankful, God, that we can sit inside these walls and wrestle together with the things you wanna do with our church. We love you, we lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. God bless. See you next week.